The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good day. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is President and Dean of Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Attorney Stephen Wagner. Stephen, good day to you today. Good day, Mitch. I'm just having one problem. I can't find any shade. <laughs> it's that warm. It's that warm, warm spell that we were told was coming through. Yeah, yeah, it has come through. It's really, really hot all through San Luis Obispo County. I'm calling in today. I was trying to get in on the B-Link, but I had some technical difficulties, so hopefully the phone is working all right. You sound just great, so no problem whatsoever. So, Stephen, it's been an interesting couple of weeks in the area of criminal justice. I know that's an area of, you know, of your practice and something you track carefully, uh, having been a former district attorney. Uh, all of this activity going on in Tulsa and Charlotte, I'm sure you've been watching it quite closely, and I, I thought perhaps that's something we should talk about today. Yeah, it is a good topic, Mitch. I mean, it's a sad one to have to discuss, but there's a lot of issues concerning police conduct and police and citizen encounters and the transparency factor and, of course, the issue that we've taken on many times on our program, and that is the use of police body cameras. Well, it certainly is the case in these in these two situations where not just police body cams, but we've got video from helicopters, we have video from family members, we have video from witnesses. I'm not sure we've seen anything, certainly recently, in which it appears that, that video footage is going to play as high a, a, a role. Uh, have you have you have you seen anything where you think it's going to be where that's really where it appears that so much is going to center around? You know, I have seen cases where there are several different viewpoints, and those are offered by citizens that are tracking things on smartphones. Uh, although you do make a good point. Now we've got aerial surveillance and several different vantage points. So it is. this is actually rather unique in terms of the various uh, vantage points and, and how they will play out and what, if anything, they will reveal. Uh, of course, everybody's anxious to see if any of the video, I'm speaking now about the Charlotte shooting, any of the video footage will actually show a gun 
in uh, the decedent's uh, hand. So, so for those who may not have been following this case, and we on VoiceAmerica.com, we have people that are listening from all over the world, although I, my guess is this may have gotten coverage, but just in case, we're talking about the unfortunate incident in Charlotte in which a police officer uh, has shot an individual, and the question is whether the, the video that is... Uh, that the police have in their in their possession is going to show definitively what happened because we have a family video that's been released as you said was taken on a cell phone and and they have a perspective of what they think it shows and the police have said they don't think that's what has happened uh, yeah it, you know it's it's interesting is that the issue of the delay in releasing the footage too uh, I don't think the the police released their footage until was it yesterday or maybe well, even earlier well, today? I'm not sure it's actually been been released I think the police chief and this is the, the police chief of Sh the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department uh, initially said that they felt because it's such critical evidence that they needed to hold it and that uh, which you would say is typical in a in an invest ongoing investigation. Police don't just collect a lot of Im information and evidence and just lay it out there for the public to look at. In any case, right? I mean that that right, in and of itself right. is normal be behavior. Uh, but the court of public opinion has put just huge pressure on the police department to release what they have. And my understanding is uh, this morning the police chief said they would release it, that they have made the yeah, decision I, that it would be more helpful than hurtful to, to release that. That's right. That's right. I think I misspoke. I, I, they didn't actually release it, but there was statements by the police chief. Uh, I think that was Chief Putney who indicated that he would be releasing it. And then he also made some comments about what is depicted in the video. I think he may have actually indicated that it may not actually show a gun in the hand of uh, the decedent, Mr. Is it uh, Scott? Mr. Right. Scott. So uh, we talked about this early on on this program. My goodness, it must have been more than a year ago. might have even been two years ago when we first talked about the effect that police body cams would have in, in so many different areas. Uh, and at the time... Uh, we've had more than one police chief on to talk to us about what it's like on that side of trying to create policy. And the greatest concern was the lack of policy, the lack of consistency in policy on what would police departments do with video once they had it. Because we didn't hear a lot of pushback, certainly from police administration, about having video. They thought that would be to the benefit of police in more times than not, and would also help uh, deter bad behavior. And they right. thought all that was good. Uh, so we were really surprised that they were in favor of it. But I, but I thought that one of the things that I saw in an article this morning was that you know, only five major cities that have deployed body cams will allow people filing police misconduct complaints to actually view the body cams. And of the 68 major cities that use body cameras, 25 don't have any policies regarding when and where and to whom they release it at all. Yeah, let me, let me speak to that issue a little bit, Mitch, because I think it's important for our listeners to know that as part of the criminal justice process, 
certainly in terms of scenarios where there are formal criminal charges made, uh, either against a police officer or against a suspect that's arrested by a police officer, and body camera footage is involved, the information that's obtained on the body cam, the footage that is, sound usually too, uh, is discoverable, meaning that the defendant and his counsel certainly has a right to review it because the prosecution will likely be relying it as part of their case when they present it. And that's really pursuant to a seminal case called Brady, meaning that there's an affirmative duty by the prosecution to turn everything over. What is unique, I think, now is that because the cameras are so prolifically used, that there are concerned citizens, sometimes activists, that want to see the footage. And a question becomes, is it proper to release it before charges have been filed? And I think that's an issue we might be able to get into more after one of our breaks. Sure, but, and in, but and in is, this case, I mean, your point is really well taken. Because in this case, uh, what I thought was interesting is the police chief absolutely allowed the family to view the, the video, even though at during the same time he was saying he didn't think it was ready f to be released for the public or that there was a benefit right. to the, for the public to see it, but he absolutely allowed the family and the family's attorney to see it, which would go right along with what you've said. That that policy seems to be in place. Yeah, and, and the, the issue surrounding early release of the video, just to satisfy public uh, curiosity, for lack of a better term. That's fraught with a lot of peril and a lot of issues because you do not want to compromise the strength of a case or the prosecution of a case, nor do you want to undermine the opportunity of a potential defendant. You know, a suspect may well be soon a, a defendant in a case so right and in, in this case it could could be the individual who was shot that that's the question could that's be right. the police officer could be the other officers that were there i mean there's a lot of unknown in fact you know your point's so well taken because in tulsa what we saw is in the other case where there's been you know so much disturbance over that of a, a police shooting of of a gentleman there at there's been a manslaughter charge brought against yeah. the police officer. And, and let's hit that when we get back we, after the first break, because I think it's we can make some comparisons between those two, because I think factually there's some real significant differences in terms of the length of time of the encounter and the nature of the, uh, the police and citizen encounter. Perfect. When and we come back too. from this break, we'll continue this discussion. We're talking about the use of video and police cams and issues of officer-involved shootings. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Don't go away. We will be right back. Deciding to go to law school brings up questions like, can I afford it? Will I be prepared to take the leap and open my own office when I graduate? I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true with professors who are practicing attorneys and judges. They mentor our graduates. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Creighton Mandeville says. I wasn't crippled in debt coming out of Monterey College of Law. I came out of it with no debt. I was able to do so. 
some working during that time and some savings. So I exited law school with no debt. I did feel prepared coming out of law school. I started helping friends with the issues that came up for them. And Monterey College of Law has so many great faculties and things that there were resources for me. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. For 45 years, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Monterey County have been a vital part of our community. The club's mission is to inspire and empower the youth of Monterey County to realize their full potential to become responsible, healthy, productive, and successful citizens. As just one of the club's programs, more than 12,000 children and families have enjoyed safe after-school care at the Boys and Girls Club's Salinas Clubhouse. The Boys and Girls Club of Monterey County is very excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. For more information about this exciting opportunity, contact President and CEO Donna Ferrero at dferrero at bgmc.org or call 831-757-4412. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or just thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School, founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings, and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admission Wendy LaRevere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. And today we're talking about the use of body cams and video, particularly in the case of police-involved shootings. And my co-host, Stephen Wagner, is joining me today. My name is Mitch 
Winnick on Wagner and Winnick on the Law. And Stephen, before the break, we were talking about kind of the balancing between the use and value and, and legal uh, definition of, of what is this video. And, and I think you were really making the point that, that much of the discussion is this difference between the need for public transparency versus the value as criminal evidence. Isn't, isn't that really what we're seeing playing out in these two cases? That's right, yeah, and I, I think it's probably a tension that may never actually go away, frankly, Mitch, but it is important to recognize it, and the idea of transparency, ironically, is one of the main reasons behind the use of body cams. If you'll recall, Chief McMillan, we had him on, and he was a ardent supporter of the use of body cams, and his department was one of the first, actually, to get them used uh, I think, in a widespread manner. I think um, that's right. The, yeah. You know, the idea, the idea is to, in fact, ensure transparency. So there was efforts to actually track what law enforcement's doing in the field. Uh, of course, if a case is prosecuted and some of the evidence that's obtained, video footage and, and sound footage from a body cam, is to be used, as I indicated previously, there's an absolute right of the parties involved to get it. Now, the question of whether the press gets it or the public gets it, I think raises some concerns because, and this is what I wanted to finish, I didn't make this point before, you and I both know that there is an obligation on the part of law enforcement, defense counsel, judges even, to not do anything that would compromise a case from being tried by the public. You know, in our system, we have trial by jury. So you think about the, the keen interest that people have in a case like this, and if you really distill it down to the actual neighborhood where jurors would be selected potentially, you really begin to see the issue. Of, so I know, of and, you've been a, right, and you've been a trial attorney your entire career, and because I, I was going to put you on the spot a bit on that, I, we hear this idea of you know tainting the jury pool that everybody's going to watch what they see on television or get their news off the web and prejudge, which is of course exactly what you don't want in a jury. But is that a realistic? I mean, it's a logical argument, but. Is that really a realistic argument in a large community where you've got millions of people, you're not going to find 12 people who can make a, a objective judgment? You, do you mean I don't want to put you on the spot there. No, 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 I like it, I like that. Because this idea of jury tainting is what they're arguing, right? No, yeah, sure. So do you mean, is it realistic to think that jurors can be impaneled that truly are not influenced? That's right. By viewing. Is that where you're yeah, going? Yeah, and you've got and you've talked on this show about how effective you can be in vor dire, which is the, the sure. method of of selecting whether somebody can make an unbiased objective judgment as a jury member and and judges and lawyers are very competent in making those selections. You you only need twelve out of an entire community. So right. so I hear the argument in favor of not doing that, but is that a fair balance? Yeah, and, and so your question is, is it realistic? Yes. I mean, can you, can you truly impanel jurors that have not heard anything about it? Here's another 
ancillary question along with that one, Mitch. Do you want jurors that didn't hear anything about it? You know what I mean? <laughs> that's that's right. You, know, you pull somebody out from because, a cave or under a rock, and is that going to be right. a good juror? <laughs> but you're, you're, you make a great point, and, and here's what often happens with cases where there's saturated pretrial publicity. It's, it becomes patently obvious early on when you're trying to select a jury that many of the jurors have been exposed to the news of an event. The next issue is what impact did it have on them, and can they still serve adequately as jurors? So, it, you know, if the exposure was polarizing to a potential juror, so as, you know, to the point where they cannot feel they can serve, then they need to be excused. But, but you're right. In certain cases, it's really kind of hard to believe that you can even select jurors that haven't heard about it. The question becomes, have they been unduly influenced by it to the extent that they can't sit in judgment? Because I would assume, let's, you know, again, we don't know how these most recent cases will play out. But even if you saw this video, the multiple videos, let's say, so there's the, there's the family's video, there's the body cam video, there's a helicopter video in this one case. Well, all of these are going to come back into a trial and they will then be put in the context of either what the prosecution or the defense are bringing forward. So you have a chance to, to, to place these videos in proper context. So is it fair to say that just releasing them is going to be so damaging and tainting to a potential jury pool that it outweighs the transparency issue? Yeah, and I, I, it's close call, Mitch. It really is. It is a close call. I mean, my, my belief is that we should err on the side of protecting the right to move forward with the case to a trial by jury setting or to in, in quite possibly a civil case in the case of a, a 1983 action, a civil rights type action. Yeah. So, uh, but it's a, it's a really tough call. You know, I, the other thing that's interesting here, Mitch, and we talked about this before is how much footage is depicted. You know, if you compare Charlotte to Tulsa, and I, I'm not so sure that Tulsa, they're dramatically different scenarios. In, in Charlotte, I think members of law enforcement were out to serve a warrant on an apartment, on somebody that lived in an apartment nearby. And, and then they came upon uh, an individual in a car. An, right. an individual in a car, right? right. So, right. you know, what's interesting is, is how much of that is depicted on the body cam. How, how much time transpired, how much time was law enforcement in the presence of the individual. And I'm, I'm really anxious to see that. Um, and then again, you compare that to the, the uh, iPhone or smartphone footage that I think, was it the wife of the decedent? I, I or believe the it was. Yes. Girlfriend or what? Okay. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've seen that, heard that. Um, that's all important too. I mean, I think it all becomes pretty relevant ultimately and both sides would would ultimately use that and i wonder how much of this is is being brought forward in this modern era where we have this craving for instant information you know this would have never come up before not because there just weren't body cams it's just we didn't have the expectation as the public of having instantaneous video i mean my gosh we watch wars 
come come about in front of us on the television in real time. Right. And so now we have events like this, and and transparency is valid. I'm, you and I are not going to disagree on the need for transparency. But when we come back after this break, I want to talk about is it is it realistic for the public to think they're entitled right away to have access? So yeah. Don't go away, everyone. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about the impact of body cams and video on, on the criminal justice system. Uh, don't go away. We'll be right back. Applying to Monterey College of Law is not hard, and we have a financial plan and class schedule that is tailored to meet your needs. I'm Wendy Law-Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true without crippling you with debt on graduation day. I chose Monterey College of Law because I wanted to continue working during the day. I had children at home and I wanted to be able to go to school at night where it wouldn't impact what my children needed from me. There really is not crippling debt that you face afterwards. Monterey College of Law has a payment plan which is manageable and they work with you. The other huge benefit of Monterey College of Law is that the professors are judges and lawyers. By taking their classes, you really actually start networking. So I was very fortunate because I also ended up with a mentor. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. For decades, the students at Monterey College of Law have graduated and gone on to pass the bar and become successful attorneys. However, not everyone goes to Monterey College of Law to become an attorney. I'm Wendy Law-Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. We also offer students our two-year Master of Legal Studies degree, which can enhance their chosen careers. I was working as a deputy coroner for San Mateo County as a death scene investigator, and I wanted a better idea of the legal issues that were involved in forensic investigations. Everything about Monterey College of Law was accommodating to the uh, course of study I was trying to find. I graduated from Monterey College of Law with no outstanding debt. I'm working as an investigator for the San Mateo County Private Defender's Office, performing indigent defense investigations. For more information, call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. If you are a small business owner, you're subject to many of the same laws and regulations that apply to large corporations. Where do you go for help? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. SBA.gov is the website published by the Small Business Administration. It provides a wealth of information for small business owners, including employment and labor law, intellectual property law, online business laws and regulations, environmental regulations, workplace safety, and foreign worker eligibility. Of course, SBA.gov is not a replacement for having your own business attorney, but it is a free resource that may help you realize when you need to consult an attorney. SBA.gov. Have you thought about a law degree? Did you know you can attend an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo? And you can begin classes in May or in August. 
I'm Wendy Law-Revere, Dean of Admissions of San Luis Obispo College of Law. San Luis Obispo College of Law is a branch of Monterey College of Law, an accredited law school established 44 years ago. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, we have convenient evening classes, Mondays through Thursdays from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. We also have payment programs that allow you to make monthly payments or apply for private student loans. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. If you've been thinking about a law degree, find out now if San Luis Obispo College of Law is your law school. Attend one of our information sessions and get answers to your questions. Or call me, Wendy Law Revere, at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org. That's slolaw.org. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar. But have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Wagner. We're talking today about issues circulating around the questions of the use of videotape in uh, incidents. We've had two recent incidents in the United States that had police-involved shootings, and uh, video has become a huge part of this. Uh, Stephen, let me ask you this other angle towards it. We, we talked about the lack of policy and you talked about how there's a balancing act between whether the video needs to be protected for evidentiary reasons or not. Do you think that as we start to work through the policies of who should get access to video and when, do you think that there should be a different level of standard or a different policy if it's a question of police misconduct versus something more serious like a police-involved shooting and a use-of-force question? Should there be like misdemeanor and felony distinctions between who should get to see the video? I don't think so. Uh, the, the interesting thing about police misconduct scenarios is that the underlying criminal conduct or alleged criminal conduct does not necessarily have to rise to the level of a felony. You know, the reality, I think, Mitch, is that, well, probably empirically, it would show that police force cases are usually connected to cases where there is a potential felony being investigated. But it could just as easily happen in a misdemeanor case also, or a misdemeanor prosecution. So 
I really think the policy in terms of transparency is sound, irrespective of whether the conduct is misdemeanor-based or felony-based in nature. Let me twist just, it just one, one other way, too, because I'm just trying to get my own sure. head around this. It seems to me there could be a distinction of whether the claim is one that might result in an administrative action or a civil action, but there's no criminal charge, versus access to video that is clearly involved in a criminal case. Do you think there's any difference or as we pressure police departments and municipalities to come up with policies on releasing video, do you think that's a difference, administrative versus criminal? In terms of the Whether you should be able to get access and who should be able to get access to the videos and how soon? You know, I, I think that with, in the case of administrative penalties or the potential exposure to administrative punishment, there, there probably should be a right to quicker access to the video footage, but I'm not sure that means public access. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a shooting case, as you know, an officer is, I think by protocol, placed on administrative leave while the shooting is investigated. And I, I have to believe that much of this video would be reviewed in direct connection to whether or not the officer acted properly. So I think it gets pretty quick scrutiny by law enforcement is my point. Uh, you know, I'm not sure whether that should impact whether the public gets access to an administrative action against an officer. Then you've got privacy rights that creep in that I think would probably compel non-public disclosure if it's only for the administrative side. Yeah. You've worked in a number of different jurisdictions in, in your different uh, in, in your one role. You were a district attorney working among a, a variety of jurisdictions and dealing with different police departments. Uh, do you think these kind of policies on on releasing video is going to end up being a local issue left a local issue or do you think it's something that's likely to become state law or do you think there should be federal standards uh, i mean i leave that in because i read that north carolina actually had passed a law that blocks the release of police recordings from body or dashboard cams uh, it does have exceptions and interestingly enough the the law yeah takes effect in October, so it doesn't apply to this case, but clearly there's a state that has tried to set some standards. Yeah, I'm, I'm a state's power kind of a guy by nature, Mitch. I think the state should be able to decide independently uh, how this should be handled rather than there being a, a nationwide practice or policy. And, you know, department in California, we now have I'm pretty certain that all 58 counties in California now have body cams within their law enforcement department, certainly dash cams, which are the cam cameras that are fixed on the dashboard of a patrol vehicle. I think I saw in one of the articles there's been 30 or $40 million allocated federally to, to help police departments uh, get body cams out. So certainly it's been, and I know in California there's been a fairly aggressive push for it as, as well, so wouldn't surprise yeah. me. 
We, you know, we, Mitch, we talked about this issue early on with, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that, uh, we took it on when we, when we did body cams the first time with Chief McMillan. And right. one of the things Chief, that I think. Chief McMillan from Salinas, who has dealt right. with a lot of issues with, uh, police involved, uh, sh uh, discharge of weapons, shooting, uh, claims of of use of force excessive use of force so he had and, a lot of experience you know, in it <laughs> oh oh absolutely yeah and i mean one of the things that i that i look forward to seeing here in the charlotte case is how complete is the footage mm -hmm. you know i think we're going to have potential disruption of the footage where maybe there wasn't a you know, complete capture of all the events. We're also going to have snippets of coverage that maybe one officer's mounted camera picked up. And because my understanding is that there was one officer who had a body cam who rushed to the scene in a cover capacity. He was not one of the first responders, but he did rush to the scene. And I think some of the coverage off of his body camera was significant, um, with respect to the location of the decedent. And my point here is that I sure hope that the whole picture is complete right, right. and that there are no gaps, right? Because yeah. we that would be the about perfect. that with that would be, Exactly. Well, he also told us about, you know, it, we were, then we weren't looking at a specific case, but you know, if, if the body cam was mounted as a, a, as a, on your gun versus on your chest versus on your hat versus on your shoulder, uh, you know, the real question is, what, what did the police officer see? What were they reacting to? And, you know, angles and, and blocking the vision and all that, it can make a huge difference. That, you know, a, a, a camera from, shot from a helicopter has a broad view. That may or may not be what the police officer was actually seeing and experiencing right there in a matter of 10, 20 feet. Yeah. yeah. And the other issue that is also potentially lurking is whether, there, whether or not there was some selective editing in the footage. And, and we also talked about that issue. Right. I mean, Chief, Chief McMillan was quite forthright about you know, recognizing that that is going to be a potential claim uh, that maybe the video was doctored and that's going to raise an issue of probably the use of experts to come in to evaluate uh, the quality uh, of the tape. So I think as we kind of wrap up this piece of it, I think you and I probably agree, as do most people, that on the on the side of transparency, I don't think anyone's arguing that this type of video should be used and should be available for review. I mean, at this, the simple level, I don't think anybody's arguing against it. I think it appears that there's already evidence that this is going to be useful. This is going to help police yeah. be better at what they do. It's going to help the criminal justice system be more fair. And it's going to protect the public from abuse. Yeah, of power. And, you, and, and you know, Mitch, in this case, everybody's thirsty for information. Right. Directly on the issue of whether the gun was in the decedent's possession. Right. Did he raise the gun? Right. What we are going to see is there's still going to be this challenging issue of, you know, yes, as a general transparency is good, but there's going to be balancing in these cases of whether it needs to be released, you know, now to the family, to the lawyers, to an administrative body, or and when does the media get it? That's that's a question that 
we're not even getting to yet because I think we're still new in the process. Uh, but as we get ready to go into this last segment, I, I do want to talk a little about that because you know, certainly in North Carolina, we ended up with a declaration of a state of emergency because of the reaction. And certainly the information available to the public was was being dealt with or being received by the public in a in a way that some people just felt they had to you know, publicly come out and demonstrate, and we ended up having a declaration of emergency. So after this break, uh, let's talk about that a little, about how much that should weigh into the decision. Sounds good. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about the use of video in criminal justice cases. Don't go away. We will be right back. Making a change in career is a serious decision that affects both you and your family. You have many questions that need to be answered before you can make a commitment. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true. And it's affordable. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Dan Cullum says. Before I was entering law school, I was an airline pilot. After I retired, I decided that I would go to law school. Monterey College of Law was the avenue to to fulfill that desire. I loved Monterey College of Law. It was small classes. The professors were very helpful, personal. You could talk to them. Tuition is not exorbitant at Monterey College of Law, which is the opposite of the way it is at other places. It's affordable. They have a, a program at Monterey College of Law that lets you pay as you go. So it's financially possible. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. Long before Woody's cruised Beach Street, kids and teens have needed to know that they are important and that they belong. Since 1969, the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Cruz has provided a place where potential is released and great futures are forged. Help celebrate our 45th anniversary by emailing your club memories and pictures to celebrate 45 years at boysandgirlsclub.info or call 423-3138, extension 23. We are also excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. Contact Executive Director Bob Langseth at 423-3138, extension 21, or email bob at boysandgirlsclub.info to learn more about this exciting opportunity. Consumer scams, fraud, deceptive business practices. Where do you go for protection? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. FTC.gov is the website published by the Federal Trade Commission. As the nation's consumer protection agency, the FTC wants to know about businesses that cheat people out of money. If you've been the victim of consumer fraud, you should file a complaint at FTC.gov. Although the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection will not help you recover your individual damages, your complaint may initiate an investigation that results in companies or individuals being sued by the government for fraud, deceptive practices, or unfair business practices. If you want more information about how to protect yourself as a consumer, go to the Bureau of Consumer Protection at ftc.gov. 
Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or are thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to constitutioncenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We've been talking about the use of video and body cams in the criminal justice system, particularly in light of the police-involved shootings in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Stephen, I, I said before the break that I'd like to move slightly different in this conversation. And, and I have in front of me here the the governor of North Carolina's executive order declaring a state of emergency. And this this came following the shooting in the city of Charlotte. And it raises a number of issues that I, that I, I just think are fascinating. Uh, he starts out by saying, you know, whereas there was an officer-related shooting resulting in the death of Keith Lamont Scott, whereas the city of Charlotte has requested assistance from the state of North Carolina to respond to the civil disturbances, whereas their citizens have the right to peaceably, peacefully assemble and protest in the state of North Carolina, and that the state is committed to protecting those rights, and whereas our student citizens and businesses must be protected from violence and damage. So he goes on with all the legal aspects of then who has the authority to declare what. But I find that all a very, it's, it's a pretty extraordinary thing when you're going to take away people's or limit people's right to assemble in when they can do it, that they have to leave the public streets and be off the streets. They could be arrested if they violated curfew. I mean, there's just a lot in that, isn't there? There is. There absolutely is, Mitch, definitely. And, 
you know, the, the right pursuant to the First Amendment and freedom of speech and assembly is certainly a powerful constitutional safeguard and really quite a sacred right. I think what makes local communities and, and, and uh, heads of communities and ultimately lawmakers think twice about it is when the reaction by protesters becomes violent. Because, as we all know, violent or hate speech is, is an exception. There is no absolute right to incite a riot or to cause civil disobedience in the form of law-breaking. And that's, unfortunately, what happens all too often. And what we saw in Tulsa was a more peaceful reaction, uh, even though there were still serious questions about the police use of force. And in fact, we yeah. did see the, mister, the uh, manslaughter charge brought against the police officer. And so in that case, there was not a, a need to have a, a state of emergency. There were, there, but there was no restriction on the right to assemble and the right to protest either. That's right. That's right. And I, you know, I, it's, it's tempting to wonder whether or not that was because there was a decision to charge that officer. And I think it was a form of uh, manslaughter. I think you're right. And she turned herself in, I think. She did? Yeah. And, and the, so she in, I, the she in this case being the police officer in, uh, that's involved right. in the that's shooting? Dr you know, yeah, dramatically different set of facts. I think in that case, the officer came upon a, a vehicle parked in a roadway. Uh, and it, it doesn't have the same set of facts. And certainly from a timeline as the, the Charlotte incident. So really, it comes to this point of transparency because certainly the access to video, the timing of release of video, the comments by the police department, the promptness in which they're perceived as taking action. I mean, all of that seems to come into this social cauldron of how how well the public believes they're being served by the police, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was trying to reach the issue, and there's no way I could solve it. Uh, why are some rallies and assemblies peaceful while others are not? You know, I, I wish I had the answer to that. Um, you know, I don't. Um, and why are some curfew laws enforced and others not? But it really is an extraordinary, and I, I don't think our listeners realize that for the for the governor to declare a state of emergency and then for the local authorities to impose a curfew, it, if you just think about it, it does not happen very often. I mean, that's an extraordinary that's, legal act. It is, absolutely. And, and yet in this case, the governor felt that it was necessary. And in fact, what we see on the, the news, as, as limited as that view is, it did seem to be the right act. Uh, we actually had a... a it appears to be, in the Charlotte case, uh, an individual shot another individual as part of the as part of the protest. So that's that, right. That's was, right. Yeah, and there was a, there was an arrest I think made. So I think what we saw there is that when it went beyond the issue of of public protest and started to expand into public violence, there was a shooting. There was there were windows being broken. Uh, there are people who allegedly were being battered and assaulted as part of this, that then it went one step too far. And that wasn't an That's issue right. of the content of the, of the uh, protest. It was the time, place, and manner, as we talk about. That's right. 
you know, and that's one one thing we might want to try to take on in a separate show one day is to talk about the pros and cons or the values of engaging in protests. What do they do for the cause? Do they? I, I would argue that in many cases they actually detract and take away from the cause if not done properly. It's a fascinating issue because I think if peacefully done, uh, there is a very clear message that resonates very often. If not peacefully done and violently done, I think there's a different outcome. And I also think it's it's just an incredibly challenging position to put police chiefs in these days because here we also see that the the nature of the reaction to the police department seems to also have an impact on the results. There's been an argument, we've talked about it on this show before, about the militarization of police. And there's this perception of by the time you load them up with a lot of body armor and shields and use of machinery and, and military-style weapons, that does that actually escalate the risk of violence and response versus calm things down. And that's going to be a topic we'll have to take up on another day as well. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, we haven't solved anything today, Stephen, but I, I hope that we've helped people think through this a little better. Uh, it's like many things that we're dealing with. These are open, open issues. You know, these policies that we're talking about for police body cams and use of video are, are in flux. They're, they have not yet been developed in many of these cities. And I, I think what our summary would be is that this is an opportunity for the public in their local jurisdictions to get involved and have a, have a role in the decision of what do they want for their community? How do they want to balance the transparency uh, versus you know, the protection of, of criminal evidence and things of that nature? That's right, Mitch. And also intertwined there is the responsibility issue and the factor that connect or is connected to those that have access to the materials. That's right. What, what, what should they or should they not do with them? Well, we'll have to come back to that, absolutely. You've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You can hear us again on voiceamerica.com on the Business Channel and hear archives of this show on wagnerandwinnick.com. You've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. As we suggest to you each week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. Having a lawyer in your court is always a good idea. Each week, Wagner and Winnick on the Law helps you sort out the legal issues and questions in a forum with judges, lawyers, and policy experts, answering your questions and discussing your personal rights within the legal system. Law School Dean Mitchell Winnick, along with law professor Stephen Wagner, will discuss the sometimes ever-changing laws and policies to keep you in the know. Listen every Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. If you don't know the law, know a lawyer. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 